Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. This is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And it is Tuesday. Oh my gosh, December 13th, time flies. 2016. And tonight's topic is Are You Turning to Stone? This is actually a common problem. Uh, Americans are afflicted by stones of all types. There's kidney stones, there's gallstones, there's stones in the salivary duct. No end of stones. And there's calcification of blood vessels and calcification in the heart. And so what's all this stone stuff doing? You know, it's like people are turning to stones. There's got to be something to do about this. So let's just talk about um, some of the major types of uh, stones or calcifications and what it means and what the conventional therapy is for this stuff, and some alternative approaches to this. Okay, so our first source here is the uh, New York Times, definitely a pro-establishment uh, newspaper. And this article is, is as far back as 1995. And so, I talk, so in 1995, I was practicing medicine back then. And in 1990... I worked with this surgeon who was very, very good. He was a short guy, so he had a uh, kind of a short guy, slender guy, small hands. And so he was doing um, gallbladder removals with an incision that was literally one inch in length. So one one-inch incision he would make in just the right place, and he could take out a gallbladder in about 15 minutes. And so you can imagine he had all the gallbladder business he could uh handle. There's a line of people lining up to get their gallbladders taken out by him. Then, this was 1990, fast forward to 1992-93, laparoscopic cholecystectomy came into being. And in laparoscopic cholecystectomy, the doctor uses all these uh, instruments, 
um, there are four or five incisions made in the abdomen, each one about half an inch long. And the abdomen is inflated with carbon dioxide, and lights are flashed in there so a doctor can see. And he usually and he uses basically a remote tool to get the gallbladder out. And it has tons of complications. But because it was perceived that it was easier surgery for the patient, in other words, most doctors were doing um, three to eight inch diagonal incisions at the margin of the uh, ribs where the liver was. This was very disfiguring. And the complications were horrendous in terms of um, the wound breaking apart, getting a hernia around the wound, needing reoperations. It was just atrocious. And so, what the, so that's the basic background of getting your gallbladder out. Meanwhile, I was in practice. I was a family practice doctor, board certified, but I did not personally do gallbladder removals, but I did refer people for gallbladder removals. And I only referred to two surgeons because those surgeons had the best record in terms of complications. However, their success in terms of relieving the person's symptoms was no more than 50%. And what this meant was that half of all the people who underwent this surgery got no benefit from it. And so this was in the early days before laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Even once laparoscopic cholecystectomy took hold about 1993, by that time I'd stopped referring people for gallbladder removal because a 50% success rate for me just was not meaningful and didn't make it worth it. So I found other ways to get rid of uh, gallbladder problems. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let's just see what the New York Times has to say. And so they say, in five years since this Band-Aid surgical technique was introduced, it has prompted a sharp rise in the number of gallbladders removed each year, in some cases from patients who have no symptoms. Various studies have shown increasing ranging from 22% to as much as 57% in the frequency of gallbladder surgery. So now, if you, if you take this at face value then, so we had 100% people getting the surgery, half of them getting a benefit, and then we have half again getting more surgery. So now the number of people benefiting is less than a third. So you have 67% frequency at least of unnecessary surgery. All right. More than 600,000 gallbladder removals are done each year, 90% of them with the new laparoscopic technique. Now it's pretty close to 100%. Gallbladder surgery is now about as common as hysterectomy, which is second only to cesarean sections. That's good to know. Uh, back when I was practicing medicine, this was written in 95, but back when I was practicing medicine, um, for the general surgeon, taking gallbladder out was the most frequent surgery. And that's really what this is saying because hysterectomy and cesareans are surgeries done by gynecologists, not by general surgeons. So any general surgeon taking out that gallbladder, that's a bread and butter. And so laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which involves an inch-long incision and three tiny puncture wounds. And it says tiny puncture wounds, but really these tiny puncture wounds are pretty darn big. They're about half inch. So you have an inch long and three half inch. Does not cost any less than the traditional open abdomen operation that leaves a six inch scar. But it has significantly erased the trauma of gallbladder surgery. So much so that experts now wonder whether the glamour of the high tech procedure 
and the promise of a rapid post-operative recovery are resulting in a lot of needless surgery. So obviously it is, since the frequency of surgeries increased, but not the frequency of those who are affected. And so here they're saying, uh, prospective patients sometimes forget every operation has its risks, and the expected benefits from the surgery should justify taking those risks. This justification may be lacking in most patients with gallstones that cause few or no symptoms. This is an important uh, concept. Just because you have a stone doesn't mean it needs to be removed and doesn't mean it will ever cause you a problem. And a lot of people who are conditioned, again, to the educational system, I want a good record, I want everything to be perfect, I don't want any blemishes, They'll have an ultrasound, it'll show they have stones, and they'll say, get them out, get them out. I don't want them in there, get them out. And this is definitely a misguided uh, response. And so as healthcare budgets shrink, which is nonsense, right, because they've done nothing but expand since 1995, it's likely that stricter criteria will be established for the appropriateness of a cholecystectomy, and growing numbers of Americans will be told by their insurers, no, we will not pay for your gallbladder surgery. Now, again, uh, you guys have been listening to this show for a while, so you know that um, the stricter criteria are created to maintain the split of 20% for insurance companies, 20% for pharmacies, or drug companies rather, 20% for doctors, 20% for hospital, and 20%, well, miscellaneous. But this split of the healthcare dollar needs to be maintained. And so if you have people getting a big increase in surgeries, then obviously the dollar amount going to the insurance companies as a percentage is less, and the dollar amount going to drug companies as a percentage is less. And so you have to constantly put criteria in restricting certain activities if they result in a disproportionate amount of money going to the wrong player in the industry. So the medical industrial complex has several segments to this market. And each segment pretty much gets about 20%. And so if a certain medical practice takes place that disrupts that dollar split, then rules have to be made to change the standard of care as well as to maintain that split. Okay, so here they say, the incidence uh, rises with age of gallstones. After age 60, about 15% of men and 40% of women have gallstones. The stones can cause inflammation of the gallbladder, or they may enter the connecting ducts and cause a blockage and possibly a life-threatening infection. However, in most cases, absolutely nothing happens, even decades after gallstones are formed. This was shown in studies that followed patients whose gallstones were accidentally discovered during other procedures. And so uh, this is important to know that most gallstones don't ever cause a problem. And so one study, only 18% of patients with no symptoms develop symptoms over a 20-year period. So this means if you're getting your gallstones taken out, um, just because they're there and you have no symptoms, then there's an 82% chance this surgery is just totally unnecessary. And obviously, it's reasonable to wait until you have symptoms to get them out 
And even if you have symptoms, you might still not need them out. In another study, pain developed in only 2% of symptomless patients annually, and the rate declined with time. Even among patients who once had symptoms, three studies showed that up to 30% had no recurrence of gallstone-related pain. In other words, one gallbladder attack is not a reason to take them out. But for those with life-disturbing symptoms and the danger of serious and possibly deadly complications, gallbladder surgery can be an important option. Gallbladder is an expendable organ. After it's removed, bile empties directly into the intestines and digestion of fats proceeds normally. Of course, we know this is not true. In fact, one of the complications of gallbladder surgery is that the bile is not released strategically during mealtime like it's supposed to be, and people can actually get um, diarrhea because the bile is, re- is released continually and in between meals. So for a while in the 80s, various chemical and mechanical methods were introduced for dissolving gallstones. But in up to half of patients, more stones formed and symptoms recurred. This is important to understand is that the formation of gallstones is a function of lifestyle. And so if that's not altered, then more stones just keep forming and forming and forming. These techniques fell largely into disuse after the laparoscopic cholecystectomy was introduced in this country in 1989. So in other words, no one was interested in dissolving gallstones anymore. The risk of recurrence is eliminated when the gallbladder is removed, either by open or laparoscopic surgery. Now this is also false, because you can't have gallstones in the gallbladder once you remove the gallbladder, but you can have gallstones forming in the liver and you can have gallstones uh, forming in the uh, bile duct itself. So, uh, not true. And this is why only half of people who have their gallbladders out get relief, because a lot of times the gallstones that are giving them trouble may be sitting in the liver, not in the gallbladder. All right. It does, however, require general anesthesia, three to five days in the hospital, and six weeks recovery before life returns to normal. Postoperative pain is considerable, but the rate of complications and death is very low. In laparoscopic surgery, you can say small incisions made near the navel and three puncture holes are made under the rib case to introduce a lighted scope, video camera, and operating tools. And then carbon dioxide pumped into the abdomen to separate the abdominal muscles and fat from the organs so the surgeon can see. And surgeons, it takes, actually takes two surgeons uh, Working together, watch a television monitor as they tie off the duct and artery feeding the gallbladder, free the gallbladder from its perch under the liver, and slip the diseased organ out through the uh, belly button incision. So most of the carbon dioxide is then sucked out of the abdomen as the wounds are covered with the equivalent of Band-Aids. And in this case, the patient only spends one night in the hospital and returns to normal activities in about five days, at most a week. And the greatest discomfort is likely to be a day or so of abdominal cramps uh, from the residual carbon dioxide. And so, uh, simple as it sounds, laparoscopic cholecystectomy is not harmless. In fact, it has been associated with a higher than usual rate of injury to the bile duct. Although this rate is still low, one-tenth to two-tenths of one percent, the rate of inadvertent injury is typically higher in operations done by surgeons new to the procedure. And obviously, whatever surgeon does it, even if you may become an expert, has to have a first time, right? 
And so uh, there are various uh, problems with this. So what causes these gallstones? Most gallstones are cholesterol stones. And so it has been thought then that since most gallstones are cholesterol stones, that, well, lower the cholesterol. Sure, lower the cholesterol. Uh, But a lot of times, um, uh, these things that are logical don't really end up making a lot of sense. And so since most gallstones are cholesterol stones, in other words, cholesterol is something that the liver manufactures and cholesterol is something that the liver takes and um, changes into um, hormones like uh, testosterone and estrogen and aldosterone. So there's a lot of work then um, that the liver does with cholesterol. It's really like a basic uh, substrate or ingredient for what the liver um, has to do. And so the calculation then, or presumption is, well, does do cholesterol-lowering drugs um, lower uh, the rate of gallstones? And the answer is uh, not by very much. So the difference between 4.8% and 5.4%. So uh, it's not a a cure-all. This is also reflected by the fact there's still so many gallbladders removed. So the big deal is that the stones are cholesterol stones. These stones are caused by low flow through the bile systems. In other words, the liver... Um, sucks up the impurities from the blood, puts them into the bile, the bile moves very slowly, and stones form. It's simply like um, salt crystals forming in water. So if the water has a very low flow rate, then salt crystals tend to form. Also, if there's not much water, if the, if the person is dehydrated, then there's, um, there's stone formation. Another reason for stone formation is a very high amount of activity in the hormones that the liver um, adjusts. So in other words, high estrogen situation, like after a woman has a baby. So when a woman has a baby, her estrogen level is way sky high. Once she has the baby, the estrogen level falls. The liver has to gather up all this estrogen, decommission it, and of course it's uh, discarded in the form of cholesterol, that is taken out of the liver into the intestines, but on the way, the flow is very slow and um, stones form throughout the liver and in the gallbladder. And so really what causes low flow or what causes stones is simply low flow. So what's the cure? Well, high flow, right? High flow. 
So what causes low flow is dehydration. So what's the cure? Drinking more water. What else causes the um, low flow is that a lot of times the bile itself simply doesn't move as quickly. And so there are a lot of things that increase um, bile flow. So cascara sagrada is one. Um, Aloe is another. Um, Apple cider vinegar helps dissolve, dissolve these stones by shifting the pH. And so stones are very much a lifestyle issue. Now, the other thing that happens that causes low flow of bile is constipation. So if the intestines are backed up and the liver can't empty its contents via the bile ducts into the intestines because they're blocked, then it's going to back up and stones are going to form. So a simple remedy for gallstones is simply having more bowel movements and just not allowing that um, bile tract to become blocked and become congested. Now, of course, you won't hear any of these things as possible cures. Um, so it, uh, it's amazing that in medicine, the underlying cause of everything is never even discussed. Or from the perspective of the doctor and the perspective of um, the um, curriculum, it's never even revealed to the doctor. The doctor is just told, hey, uh, these things happen, big mystery, uh, too bad, but isn't it great we have surgery? And we can, um, we can do surgery for these things. We don't know what causes it. We don't have to know what causes it. But the fact that it occurs in people who are fertile, that means women who, who've had babies, so the high estrogen level, and with the whole uh, process of discarding these um, cholesterol structures in the estrogen, um, people who eat lots of fried food, which is associated with dehydration, and um, french fries, uh, which is also associated with constipation. And so rather than getting at the real issue here, you know, in medical school they describe a bunch of patient characteristics without mentioning the actual lifestyle issue that causes the problem. So this is gallstones. And the, the issue with gallstones is, one, at least 67% of the surgery is of absolutely no use to people getting it, maybe even a higher percent than that. And <coughs> that the prevention is, is, is pretty, pretty simple. And obviously, vitality capsules are um, a great help with this. Vitality capsules do contain cascara sagrada, and they also help you have uh, frequent bowel movements. I've had patients who've had um, gallbladder-type problems. They've had their surgery, and they've had <laughs> no improvement in their symptoms. They take vitality capsules, and their symptoms improve. Why is this? Because the bile flow in the liver is increased, and the, actually the underlying issue is, uh, is addressed. So that is gallstones. And a, well, actually, we should say a little bit more about that. Now, the medical industrial complex says that what causes gallstones is a poor diet. So diets high in, in flour and sugar increase the risk of gallstones. 
However, the real issue here is dehydration. So people can eat all the flour and sugar they want. If they're drinking plenty of water, they may have other problems, but gallstones won't be one of them. Another uh, association is diabetes. Now, diabetes is fundamentally a disease of dehydration. Uh, Any diabetic can cut their blood sugar in half just by drinking water and literally cure themselves with diabetes by drinking water. And so being diabetic is a surrogate indicator of dehydration. And so if you ask any doctor, they'll say, oh, diabetics have increased risk of gallstones because, well, we think they have uh, high triglycerides. Hmm, there aren't triglycerides in the gallstones. They're cholesterol gallstones. So the association with diabetics is related to dehydration. Also, rapid weight loss causes um, gallstones. So they mentioned going on a crash diet, losing weight extremely quickly, increases the risk of gallstones. And so they say it's because the body attempts to excrete a lot of fat in a short amount of time. Again, uh, cholesterol is a type of fat, but the real deal is many people will actually attempt weight loss at the same time cut back their water and not increase uh, their water. And cholesterol-lowering drugs increase cholesterol excretion into bile and therefore increase the risk of stone formation. Again, uh, the cholesterol-lowering drugs make things worse, but the real deal is the person is dehydrated. So, um, and this is why a lot of times when doctors really study and they read this stuff, which I did when I was a doctor, so confusing. And it's just a lot to sort out and it just doesn't make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because the underlying theme, which is dehydration, is never discussed, is never addressed. Well, let's take a look at kidney stones. Now, kidney stones are interesting because so many people not only have them, but so many people actually pass them without um, any problem at all, although we hear about the ones that do have problems. So let's mosey on over to the Mayo Clinic and see what they have to say about kidney stones. So the type of kidney stones are calcium stones, and they say most kidney stones are calcium oxalate uh, stones. So oxalate, of course, is naturally occurring substance found in food, fruits and vegetables. However, the issue here is calcium oxalate stones. So you can't get a calcium oxalate stone unless, of course, you have calcium. So a high-calcium diet combined with lots of fruits and lots of vegetables as well as nuts and chocolate. What diet is that? That's a vegetarian diet. So many vegetarians, for example, eat dairy, and um, they eat lots of vegetables, nuts, and chocolate, and ba-boom, calcium stones, uh, calcium oxalate stones. Now, some people try to say, well, you know, um, how about just don't eat anything with oxalate, nothing with oxalate? Well, the problem with that is a lot of very nutritious things, um, like spinach, swiss chard, and parsley, have a fair amount of uh, oxalate in them. And so these are things that actually do have a place in a healthy diet. So the solution, of course, is to stop eating the dairy that combines with the oxalate, the dairy being the high calcium source, giving you calcium oxalate, and definitely not taking calcium supplements 
to prevent your calcium stone. Now, there's another um, stone that's calcium phosphate stone. Now, calcium phosphate stone is also uh, created by um, soft drinks, which are high in phosphorus. So then there's struvite stones, and they form in response to an infection, like urinary tract infection. Again, but urinary tract infections are caused by what? Only two things, dehydration and constipation. That's it. So the way to prevent struvite stones is to drink more water and have more bowel movement. But you won't hear this from the Mayo Clinic. What about uric acid stones? These are very popular. So uric acid stones form in people who don't drink enough fluids or who lose too much fluid. Ding, ding, ding. How do they lose too much fluid? They take diuretics and water pills for their hypertension. Correct. Right. So those who eat a high-protein diet, that would be meat, and those who have gout. Now, gout is um, caused exclusively by uh, uric acid, high uric acid, and uric acid crystals. So crystals is what you get just before you form stones. So you get a whole bunch of crystals together, and boom, you've got a stone. Now, the way this works is a person eats meat. The meat is broken down into uric acid. This is by the liver, by the way. The liver sends the uric acid over to the kidneys and says, hey, you, you, get rid of this. And the kidneys say, yes, sir, but the kidneys don't have enough water to get the job done. The uric acid gets trapped on its way out of the body, crystals form, and then stones form. So obviously, you can get rid of the uric acid stones and the gout, by the way, by having more bowel movements and emptying the liver more thoroughly, more completely, so it doesn't send this uh, uric acid or protein byproduct to the kidneys. Kidneys don't do well with a lot of protein. So you want to keep the liver going so it disposes of the protein and you want to drink lots of water so you're constantly flushing the kidneys. And so there's cysteine stones. Those are inherited. And um, so obviously we can't bother with anybody's genes, but the kidney excretes too much amino acid, namely um, cysteine, and so, again, water here is the answer. You just simply dilute the problem, and the body can handle it a lot better. And so other stones are more rare, but these are your basic kidney stones, and they can be easily handled by decreasing your dairy, get rid of your calcium stones, don't take calcium supplements, and... Um, Increase your water intake. Okay, here's your calcium stones. Your struvite stones, um, easy. Don't get dehydrated or constipated. The struvite stones are caused by constipation and dehydration. You have uric acid stones, which is caused by a high meat diet combined with uh, constipation and dehydration. And the cysteine stones are said to be hereditary, however, Again, if you have the flow going, these leave the body very nicely. And so kidney stones, if you ask your regular doctor, one that has a license, I don't have a license, by the way, but if you ask a licensed doctor what to do about kidney stones, they kind of lift their hands in the air, shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, you can get lithotripsy and 
bombard your body with sound waves while you're sitting in a pool. Um, you can um, have surgery, maybe get this kidney removed, if the stones are big enough. So you have all these solutions that have really nothing to do with the problem. And many people who do these things to get rid of their stones get more stones that form. Well, what can you do if you have a kidney stone and it's passing, let's say, and you're having a lot of pain? It's like, oh, my God. So I had a patient like this. Uh, he was having lots and lots of pain. He went to the emergency room, and they said, you know what? It's a kidney stone, and boy, is it going to hurt. Oh, my God, it's going to hurt. And so I gave him a bunch of uh, narcotics, but he was a recovering drug addict. So he says, well, I don't want to take these narcotics, but I don't want to hurt either. So he comes to my office and tells me this story. I says, well, you know, that muscle in the tube where your stone is stuck is smooth muscle. And this is the kind of muscle that castor oil works on. So how about you drink some castor oil? And I'm drink a lot of castor oil, like a quarter cup. And I uh, told him to drink lots and lots of water and no soda pop. So he drank lots and lots of water, took his quarter cup of castor oil, and boom, the kidney stone popped out in, uh, in less than an hour. And he was a happy camper. But again, uh, a lot of what doctors are trained to do has absolutely nothing to do, I'll repeat, nothing to do with the problem. That's pretty discouraging. Now, what other kind of stones do we have? Well, stones can also occur in the um, arteries. So you can have calcification of the arteries. You probably know that as hardening of the um, of the arteries. And so the question is, what uh, you know, what is this and what ultimately can be done about it? And so for this, we look to news, medical, life sciences, again, another industry-friendly uh, publication. And they say that calcification of the arteries is a slow, they use the word gradual and progressive, that means it gets worse and worse and worse, that is seen in most people after the sixth decade of life. Oh, my God. This results in a reduction of arterial elasticity and an increased propensity for morbidity, that means danger or disease, and mortality, that means death, due to the impairment of the heart system blood flow. And so uh, to summarize this and make it more understandable, the arteries take on calcium and they become stiff and when the blood tries to flow through them, they don't stretch, they don't have the elasticity, and the blood vessels narrow. And this is especially a feature of the um, valves in the heart, like the aortic valve. So you get aortic stenosis, where literally the heart valve turns to stone and stops opening and closing. It gets stuck initially in an open position, which you say, well, that's pretty good, at least the blood can flow. But once it gets stuck in an open position, the calcification progresses where the opening narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows, and ultimately the valve needs to be replaced, and the person gets uh, along the way high blood pressure and, of course, congestive heart failure, enlarged heart, and just uh, all overall uh, compromise. 
Now, this calcification is different. This is apatite calcium salt precipitates, and similar to hydroxyapatite, which is found in bone. This is very interesting because the way the bone properly works in the body is a layer of collagen is laid down. And just for your information, heart valves are collagen. That's what they're made of. Furthermore, the lining of blood vessels is also made of collagen. So this is a layer that turns to stone. And so in the normal production of, of a bone, collagen layer is laid down. And then on top of that, the body goes back and then cal- calcifies that collagen. And obviously, when your body goes back and calcifies the collagen in the aortic valve, that is not normal. That is not okay. And so the question becomes, in my mind, why would the body lay down calcium in a heart valve in the blood vessels instead of where it's supposed to, which would be in the bones themselves? And so uh, our medical-friendly publication here says, risk factors associated with pathogenesis, that means disease, of vascular calcification is old age, uh, African-American, can't change that, no college education. And if you go back and go to college, then the calcification reverses, tough to say. High total cholesterol, smoking, and hypertension are the risk factors. But wait. Hypertension is an effect of calcification. So once the calcification takes place, it causes the hypertension. So hypertension doesn't cause the calcification. That's if we're going to believe what they just told us. And now smoking uh, is also a risk factor. So several proteins have been identified in playing a role in the development of vascular calcification. Um, Some help, some make it better, and some make it worse. Failure in the compliance and elasticity of the aorta leads to heart failure. And calcium deposits also cause weakening of the vascular response. The final result is a compliance mismatch with the heart system. And you have early mechanical failure, which means the heart just basically breaks down. And so they really don't tell you... uh, what the risk factor here is. So first of all, if you have calcification, a huge issue here is, well, calcium. And uh, they say here's the evidence demonstrating an effective therapy that reduces calcification is lacking. So there's no evidence that calcifications can be reduced. So just forget that. Regimens such as calcium channel inhibitors, that's a um, blood pressure medicine, or statins have not shown any promising results. So in other words, calcium channel blockers, which is blood pressure medicine, statins, which is cholesterol-lowering medicines, are just useless for this. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to assume that using these medicines may be a step in the right direction. Okay, so we have no evidence demonstrating effectiveness, but it's reasonable to assume that they would be a step in the right direction, helpful. And so... Again, this is the kind of logic that keeps doctors doing things that are not of helpful to, helpful to patients. And so 
uh, care should be taken with the use of certain drugs such as vitamin K antagonists, which seem to have an accelerating effect on arterial calcification. So here's a huge clue. So if you destroy the vitamin K and it increases the calcification, then why not increase the vitamin K? Of course, they haven't looked at that, but that's okay. I get it. They can't do everything. So the thing you do then is clearly the vitamin K supplementation, or even better yet, how about eating something that has vitamin K, like uh, spinach or green leafy vegetables. Um, and of course, we see eating more vegetables definitely reverses calcification. Uh, but this is definitely something that you should embark on as soon as you realize that your arteries are just not that compliant or that they are having issues. So what have I found with people who have, let's call it, hardening of the arteries? I have found, indeed, that switching into a uh, vegetarian diet that's filled with vegetables, we'll call it uh, green leafy vegetables, um, onions, garlic, string beans, you know, real vegetables, um, that this really does improve the situation. So I have one patient who had an aortic issue, he had calcification of his aortic valve with aortic insufficiency. That's a medical term, meaning that the valve was was open and, and blood was passing in both directions without the valve properly closing. So he came to me and said, you know, Doc, I don't want to get heart surgery because I'm really scared and the doctor says I'm really sick and I probably won't survive the surgery anyway. I thought that's a reasonable reason not to get um, the surgery. So I said, look, I'm no expert, I'm no cardiologist, but why don't we put you on a vegetable diet, give you more vegetables, vegetarian diet here, and have you drink a little more water and see how it goes. And about three months later, he was doing great. His cardiac output had increased. He was able to um, go to work without problems. And he was just really feeling great and very happy. And so he um, moved along like this for about a year. Then he decided, you know what? I'm going to go back to that doctor, that cardiologist. I'm going to go back to the cardiologist. So he went back to the cardiologist. The cardiologist says, what are you doing here? I didn't think you'd be alive. I figured you'd be dead by now. But since you're alive and you're in such good condition, let's do open-heart surgery. The patient comes to me and says, well, Dr. Danis, what do you think? Should I get the open-heart surgery? I said, you know what? It's up to you, whatever you want to do. However, you know, you've done pretty well. Maybe you want to keep going in this direction. So he decided he wanted to get the surgery. He got the surgery. Thank God he survived the surgery. And uh, what they did was they took out his old aortic valve, put in a new aortic valve, and uh, he continued on with that. But very, very interesting that something as simple as a dietary change would handle calcification of the arteries, something that has totally eluded science and what is going so far as to say, well, we have some drugs, they're proven to be ineffective, but we should use them anyway. And this type of reasoning is absolutely rampant. Um, 
in the medical industrial complex. And this is why doctors end up doing so many things that are of very little use. And so something, something is, is, is not useful, but has harm associated with it, then what you end up with is simply harm, harm, and, well, more harm. So that is the stone story. Now, some people say, well, Dr. Yes, wait a minute. What if I have a stone in my parotid duct and I have a stone in my thyroid gland? What if I have these stones here and there in my body? What would be causing those? So once you've solved your hydration issue, unless you're drinking enough water, once you solve your bowel movement issue, you're having three bowel movements or more a day, and if the, if the stone issue still persists, the question is, what's the calcification all about? And sometimes we'll have calcifications in the brain, right? You'll get an MRI scan, CAT scan, and the doctor will say, hey, there's calcifications in your brain. What's up with that? Well, it turns out that when you have infections with parasites, the parasites will make a little home, and then what your body does is it will actually surround the parasites with calcium as a way of protecting your body from those parasites. And so that is another cause of stones. So in stones that are not in the brain, outside of the brain, you can actually apply topical turpentine to that two or three times a day along with regular bowel movements, along with increasing your water intake, and that will uh, dissolve stones. Now what are the stones in your brain, calcifications in your brain? Well, then you really don't have a choice to take the turpentine internally. I know, I know, I know. A lot of people just say, you know what? I just can't really get next to that. But I get that. I get that. So I have a report. It's called the Candida Cleaner Report. I revised it to make it simpler to understand and follow. And it's a 2.0 version. You can get that for free at VitalityCapsules.com. Yep, VitalityCapsules.com. And um, so stone formation... Very simple, drink more, poop more, eat more vegetables, and it's pretty much the end of your uh, need for stones or the, or the presence of stones in your body. Now, there are some processed foods that make stones more likely, and of course, <laughs> they are associated with um, dehydration. So foods like um, soda pop, foods like uh, white flour, which is basically super, super dry powder, uh, white sugar, because white sugar started life as the sap or fluid of the cane plant. And so this fluid, of course, was deprived of all of its water and all of its nutrition, leaving a white powder that, of course, dehydrates the body as soon as it enters. So uh, that is the basic answer to stones. Um, So stones can be avoided, and if you can't avoid them, you can reverse them. Now I have to say, this is definitely my opinion. It's not medical advice. Anything you do based on this information um, is totally your responsibility. Not mine, I accept no responsibility or liability, whatever. Okay. 
All right, so we are ready for questions. We've got 12 minutes left. Let me go take a look and see if we have questions on the telephone lines. All right, so no questions there, so let's turn our attention to the um, chat room. Down to Daniels, gallbladder removal itis is running rampant around me. Is there anything I can do to flush out my gallbladder to make sure mine is okay? I'm already working at getting up to a gallon of distilled water a day. Thanks. All right. First of all, if you do not have any symptoms, then it's entirely possible you do not have a problem. This is an important concept to grasp. If you feel good, if everything feels fine, it probably is fine. So this is a huge, huge concept. So if you are not having any gallbladder symptoms, that would be right upper quadrant pain, nausea, fever, then don't worry about it. But if you want to do anything, then the, the, thing, the place to start would be to make sure you have three bowel movements a day. I would leave it at that. As far as drinking a whole gallon of distilled water a day, um, that would only be appropriate if you weigh, say, 200 to 250 pounds. So if you're under 200 pounds, then that's a lot of water to drink, and it's not necessarily going to be uh, a beneficial thing. So the thing to understand is if you feel fine, you are fine. Okay, another question. Uh, Dr. Daniels, if a person has liver symptoms like dizziness and rashes, does that necessarily mean they have liver stones or gallstones? No, it does not. So if a person has liver symptoms like dizziness and rashes, it might be that the person's constipated. It might be that they're dehydrated. Those are the first two places to start. And then it might be that they have a toxic diet, that they're putting in toxins and chemicals. And so once a person increases their water, increases their bowel movements, generally uh, dizziness and rashes clear up uh, very nicely. All right, we have a couple of questions on the line here. Let's see what we got. Hi, your name and your question, please. Hi, Dr. Daniels. Yes. Um, I have a question. Um, I would like to know what to do for an infected tooth because I would like to have it cleared up before I go to a dentist. And also, if there's bone loss, can you bring a bone back? Is there some way that bone can come back? Yeah, it depends on uh, how far lost it is. So let's just say the bone is still there, but it's just like thinned out or um, mm-hmm. or weak, like it's an osteoporosis or something. Um, mm-hmm. Well, first let's talk about the infected tooth because that's so easy. Okay. So an infected mm-hmm. tooth is very simple. You just take some, uh, take a piece of white cloth, soak it with clove oil, uh, fold it up, and tuck it right up there next to your root where the infection is. And if you do that, then usually it takes about two days at the most and the infection is gone. Okay. So clove oil is is the answer for the infected tooth. So now once Mm -hmm. you've got the infection gone, then we have your second question, which is how do we get some more bone going on here? Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is with the simplest way is with gelatin. Just take a gelatin supplement, and that would be anywhere from one to four tablespoons a day. Uh, the caveat there is you do need to increase your water intake to uh, compensate for the gelatin. That would be the way to, to go about it. So the gelatin, 
you're going to increase your bone formation because, again, your body has laid down collagen, which is made from gelatin, and then it calcifies on top of that. And so your body cannot make new bone unless it has that gelatin. Okay. Um, one other question. Um, oh, gosh, now I forgot what it was. Um, along with the tooth, um, okay, to prevent cavities, I think I'm not, I'm not able to hear your question, but your question is how to prevent cavities? Yeah, you. I think you said once minerals for ca- to prevent cavities mm-hmm. or to repair cavities. Right. But there was something else also right. besides minerals. I don't quite remember what it was. Um, again, the problem with the cavity is the cavity is basically a break in uh, in the bones. So you get a break and then weakness in the hole. So your body is not able to repair or maintain um, that bone. And the big part of that is the gelatin and the minerals. And so with the two together, you should be able to um, prevent cavities and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, clear, clear that up uh, pretty well. All right. Okay. Thank you for calling. We have another caller here. And this takes time to connect because it's coming all the way from Panama. Hi, this is Dr. Daniels. Your name and your question, please. Can you hear me, Dr. Daniels? Yes, I can. Okay. My name is Al. My question is, last week I called, and I talked about Mm -hmm. I I did have a stroke about uh, 20 months ago, and you recommended milk thistle. Mm -hmm. I guess the question Mm -hmm. I have for you is, uh, as far as milk thistle is concerned, what are the milligrams Mm -hmm. that you recommend, and do you recommend, I know you recommend in high amounts. Uh, mm-hmm. Should I start out slow, or just, or I don't, I don't have to. As far as well, uh, equilibrium uh, is concerned, definitely start off with. Uh, you definitely should start off with at least one gram. So the milligram is like not going to do you any good. And so the best way to do that would be to buy the actual milk thistle seed. Um, so you can buy the actual milk thistle seeds, organic, buy it by the pound. And you can just grind it up and start with like a quarter teaspoon. Um, once a day, then maybe a quarter teaspoon twice a day, and then you can increase to a half teaspoon twice a day. Um, the top dose is actually a tablespoon a day, but you may not need to even go that high. I would say um, continue to increase the dose until you see improvement. Once you see improvement, hold it at that dose, and then um, keep that dose as long as you're continuing to improve. Okay, I appreciate that. And then one, the other question is, as far as mold disease is concerned, I was exposed to a lot of mold uh, for a long period of time, and I have an itching disorder, uh, internal itching from time to time, especially during stressful seasons or stressful times. Uh, how do I get rid of that? Um, go to vitalitycouncils.com and download your Candida Cleaner report and follow okay. that, and that, sh- that should definitely clear that up for you. So you go to vitalitycouncils.com, and then you enter your email address, okay. and then you'll you'll get the um, Candida Cleaner 2.0 updated version. Okay. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hi. You're welcome. Okay. We have another person. Hi. Hello, Dr. Dr. Daniels. Question? Hi, Dr. Daniels. It sounds like a pet. Hi, um, I have a, a, a child that's 16 years old. Every night when he after he has dinner, his stomach starts to really itch, and he has a bad stomach ache. And the stomach ache gets gradually worse as the evening goes on. 
like 11, 12 is the worst of the stomach ache, and it's the only time of day he gets a mm-hmm. stomach ache. Does it sound like that's parasites in there? Absolutely. Yep, exactly. So Even that, I mean, what, it would, the, turpentine? what was that? I'm sorry? How is he doing with his turpentine? Uh, I've never tried turpentine with him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so first thing you have to do is make sure he's pooping three times a day. Then if you'll take turpentine, fine. If you won't, you can actually just rub the turpentine in his belly. Okay, now, the other also, thing you can do is adjust what you're feeding him. So you're, you've got to change what you're feeding him. Because obviously it's not the only meal of the day he's eating, but he's not having problems with the other meals. Okay. If he has parasites, wouldn't that be with every meal? Wouldn't he have the stomachache with every meal if it was parasites? No, parasites have preferences. and So you're feeding them what they want, apparently, in the evening. Okay. And what what's the best thing for, for him to go to the bathroom three times a day because he only goes once a day? I've tried castor oil. Um, that doesn't seem to work. I've tried castor oil packs. That doesn't seem to work. Wait a minute. How much castor oil did you give him? How much castor oil did you give him? A tablespoon. Okay, so until you're up to at least a quarter cup, you really haven't tried it. A quarter cup of castor oil? Yeah, but start with a tablespoon. We know it doesn't work, so go to two tablespoons, and then go to three tablespoons, and then go to a quarter cup. Okay. And then, or if it doesn't do what you said, turpentine, is that right? Rubbing that on the stomach. No, if you don't get them pooping, you can't. Uh, yeah, you can. You can give them some turpentine in the stomach, or even better, you can just massage his stomach, and that's going to give him more bowel movements. Or just show him how to massage his stomach. Is he okay, concerned so about this, or he doesn't think it's a big problem? Um. Well, he. You know, it's pretty uncomfortable when he gets his stomach hurting. So it's. You know, it's pretty uncomfortable for him. No, I mean, but is he, he motivated? To... Is he gonna? Yeah. What's he gonna do? You know what I mean? If he, I mean, even though it's uncomfortable, he might say, well, you know, it's uncomfortable, but I really don't feel like doing anything about it. Oh, no, he'll do it. He'll saying? do what he has to do. Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, so okay. he has to get right, to the bathroom right. three times first before he can do the turpentine and rubbing it on there. Is that right? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Daniels. Well, yeah, okay. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. You're welcome. Okay. We have one more question. Can you grow back part of the metatarsal bone after it was aggressively cut during surgery? Probably not. Because in surgery, when it's cut, you cut out also the matrix and the blueprint your body needs to follow to lay down uh, more bone. All right, that is it. We are at the end of our show. We'll see you again next week. And as always, think happens. <laughs> 